Wave 3 News troubleshooters John Bowl and Natalia Martinez take you behind the investigation. Right now on Wave 3 News Now. Welcome to the Wave Troubleshooters Behind the Investigation podcast. Along with Natalia Martinez, I'm John Bold. This time we're going to talk to you about the big lawsuit that was filed this week in the old National Bank mass shooting. Natalia Martinez uh, broke the story. Uh, before we get to the details of the lawsuit, what may or may not make this one different from all the others filed in a, a mass shooting of this kind. Let's first of all start, Natalia, by talking about how it came about that you're able to break this and how long it's been in the works? It's been in the works for a long time. I've been in contact with several of the people unfortunately involved in this uh, tragedy from a couple of the family members of people who died um, in the mass shooting on April 10th um, to the attorneys who are representing some of the people um, affected. Those are two of the uh, fatal victims that were shot and killed, Josh Barrick, his wife, Jessica, um, they had two little kids, and um, and Karen Tut, who was the wife of Jim Tut, who um, also died when the shooter came in and unleashed in that conference room. So this has been several months, um, several months in the making. I knew that the lawsuit was happening. Um, I knew before it was filed that they were getting all their ducks in a row and starting to talk to folks who may want to be a part of it. Um, right now, there are six plaintiffs. That may change, um, either people adding on or dropping off from the lawsuit. But what I didn't know exactly was the approach that they were going to take to this lawsuit. Yes. Um, originally, um, there were some talks about the marketing behind the manufacturer of the weapon that was used. Okay. Um, but then that then uh, changed rather quickly. Um, before anything was ever put in writing. And now they are going to sue the store that sold the weapon to the shooter. Okay, so most of the time, these gun store lawsuits and things like mass shootings don't make it very far. However, this one has a very key difference in that there was a customer there uh, with some really disturbing observations. So this customer um, came forward and said that there was a person that was acting very strangely in the store. It was a young man who wouldn't make eye contact, wouldn't raise his gaze. He didn't know uh, the kind of uh, weapon that he wanted to buy. The clerk, she said, had to show him how to load it, basic functions, and that he was acting so bizarrely that she thought she should call police. That's that's amazing because keep in mind here, this is not some uh, anti-gun zealot. This is a customer in a gun store. A customer in a gun store. Assumably a, a pro-gun person. Presumably. Right. Mm -hmm. um, she didn't call police, though. Um, and so what this lawsuit alleges is that because... Um, Gun retailers are supposed to be what the lawsuit calls the first line of defense, and that they are trained, the lawsuit alleges, to catch certain red flags, like um, people who don't know what weapon they want to purchase, like um, wanting a type of weapon that really isn't suited for the thing they claim they want it for. In this case, the shooter had said that his friend's house had been burglarized, and so he wanted an AR-style rifle for protection. Well, the lawsuit alleges that if you're going to protect your home, a rifle that is heavier and that has to be held with two hands is more cumbersome and not really suited for quick defense. Um, that is what the lawsuit alleges. 
Uh, that is one of those red flags. Um, the other one is that he didn't know how to use it at all. Um, and that they upsold him certain accessories like um, magazines, extended magazines with 30 rounds um, and a red dot so that he could identify the target um, and a clip, um, a handle that goes at the bottom for better control. Yeah, that is another very interesting part of this that they upsold him. And I don't think that's getting really enough publicity. Okay, but now let me flip it on you. <laughs> so I spoke to someone totally off the record um, yesterday just to get... Um, their thoughts about the lawsuit. Now, um, they are someone who would know, um, someone who is in the uh, gun store business, okay. um, who I have gone to um, objectively to learn and ask questions. Um, this person tends to not be um, very go, like, Hardcore Second happy. Amendment? No, he he um, he is very supportive of the Second Amendment, um, and he has been involved in the industry. However, okay. he he's very objective. So okay. I have used him as a reference for many years. Okay. He told me um, he started dissecting. I said, "What do you think about this lawsuit?" And he started dissecting it, and he said, um, "It's subjective. Yes. Maybe. How do you know what is going on with a person when they don't look at you in the eyes? Maybe." Maybe he's a shy guy. Right. Imagine how many people in the in the retail industry, how many over the course of an entire day, how many people act like that because they got things going on in their life. Well, we all. Well, when we see somebody, how do we know, right? Right. So, um, so that's one thing that he said is going to be very difficult um, in the course of this lawsuit. Right. That it's subjective. You don't know the person. Maybe autistic. And doesn't you know doesn't make eye contact. Right. Um, the argument about the gun um, being cumbersome. Well, he said, if you don't know how to properly shoot and can aim and hit a target, you could argue that having thirty rounds to spray, you may hit your target much oh, easier yes. right. than right. if you had you know six rounds in a chamber. Um, the same thing goes for the red dot because it said, okay, well, what about the red dot? He said, okay, well, if you don't know how to really, if you have no target practice, then this red dot may help you. All those things can be explained. And it's good that you went to that person to get this feedback. And that is why many of these lawsuits never make it very far. But the, still, to have a customer in the store so disturbed by what was going on that they almost called police right there. That is, um, that is a very... What did this person say about that? Um, that that is uh, working in the lawsuit's favor. That usually, you know, it, these lawsuits have come about. Some of them have had success. Um, one of them is pending right now. Um, and that is the difference. That in this case, there was somebody who even said, when I saw the mass shooting happen, I turned to my husband and I told him, I bet that's that kid from the store. So um, that is going to work in their favor. Here's the other component that I think, realistically, um, just you know, analyzing the lawsuit and what what we may see happen here, is that this gun store isn't a huge gun store, right? It's a mom and pop store. You could argue it's owned by a guy and his wife. It's been open for since 2011, I believe. They don't have millions of dollars to go up to uh, to go up against three very strong law firms. We've got Tad Thomas Law, who he is a very respected, um, very successful, intelligent lawyer um, that has um, won several cases here in Louisville. Hans Poppy. Um, yes. Another strong one of two plus million dollar patient dumping verdict here recently. These are these are frontline really good attorneys. And every town 
and their team of attorneys who every time that's all they do is litigation specific to mass shootings and so um they're, you know, the idea of them being able to go up against that, right? You can drown someone just in legal fees alone. Right. right. So, um, so you know, that's that's part of what we're going to see play out in all of this. So, what has reaction been like after this? I found it interesting. The last couple of nights, as I've left the newsroom, I've talked to our executive producer and I said, "Gee, I imagine like the CNNs and NBCs and all the people that usually request our stories from us. I imagine they're all over this requesting." And they said, "No." Curiously enough, no. Nobody's even requested the story from us, which mm-hmm. really makes you wonder. Like, is this happening so often right now? Or maybe the fate of these lawsuits in many cases that like the, the networks aren't jumping aboard. I thought for sure the networks would jump aboard when you have yeah. a customer who almost called police. Especially um, since we we had we carried the live feed yeah. um, and we yeah. provided it to uh, to other national uh, websites. But I think you're right. Unfortunately, there you know we experience this and we see it all the time. I mean, Louisville's homicide rate has gone through the roof, and how how much apathy is there now? Whenever we report it, right? It almost sounds like another shooting, another homicide, and it's another life. But because this happens so often, I think the public is starting to just accept it in a way. Part of the thing that I I know affected me, I think I've told you that I I had to go and get mental health counseling. First time in my whole career that I had to do that after the shooting. Because it was multifold as to why. It was, uh, I anchored 17 hours coverage in the three days after it. I think Running the police body cam video affected me mm-hmm. as to how violent and horrible it was. But mostly the fact that it happened the day after Easter mm-hmm. uh, by somebody who this gunman was at an Easter function uh, the day before. And had gone out to dinner with the first person that he shot when he entered the building. Yeah, He was friends with Dallas Schwartz. Um, that is something that haunts her. Um, I've interviewed several of the officers who were first to arrive on scene. The guys who tried to rescue ran up, hid behind pillars. They had bullets flying right by them as they were trying to lift Officer Nick Wilt that had been shot in the head. Um, their interviews are incredibly powerful. Um, Jessica Barrick's interview um, that I that I did not too long after the shooting. She was adamant about wanting to do it. We, we you know, I wanted to give her that option if she wanted to stop at any point. Um, but she, uh, her interview is probably the hardest interview I've ever done in my career. Yeah. The pain was raw. It was unprocessed. Um, I don't know that it will ever be processed. Um, but she, uh, she was angry. It was incomprehensible. Um, She has two little kids. And I remember at the end of the interview, I asked her, is there anything else that you wanted to share? And she pulls out these, I'm getting goosebumps just remembering it, but she pulls out these two flashcards, these two little pieces of paper where she had asked her seven and nine-year-old to write something that they loved about their dad. And she, I remember the paper was shaking as she read it. And it was the sweetest thing that kids could say. You know, I love how he loved me. I loved his smile. And those kids now do not have a father. She um, is left with that gaping hole. And I understand you going to therapy. I mean, it was, it was, it was the hardest uh, interview of my career. Um, just on Monday, uh, I sat down with Karen Tutt. 
and that is the wife of Jim Tut. And she was very articulate, um, and through it was not an easy interview for her to do. Um, and I don't think under any other circumstances other than her will to bring about change would she have done this interview. Um, so I'm going to play yes. play this story. And we'll um, talk about it. Yes, okay. It started like any other morning. So Jim and I had coffee together and um, shared what we were gonna, you know, how we were gonna spend that day. He gave me an exceptionally long hug that morning, which I'm so thankful for. And he said what he often did, which is, I just adore you and I can't wait to come back home to you. And then he walked out the door. Those words stay with Karen Tut. Jim was one of five people shot and killed during a mass shooting on April 10th at Old National Bank. Tut remembers her son calling her that day, asking if Jim was at the bank. I started to worry right away because he would always call me back. He would have texted me. And I just had a feeling. Karen has joined Josh Barrick's widow and others who were shot in a lawsuit. It claims the gun shop ignored many red flags about the shooter they are trained to and obligated to notice. The lawsuit says an eyewitness in the shop at the time of the purchase thought about calling police after witnessing the man's behavior, barely speaking and knowing nothing about the firearm he wanted. Karen would also like to stop the sale of AR-15 style firearms to the general population. I don't think that the gun industry should be able to hide behind the Second Amendment and avoid moral and social responsibility. There are people who are going to watch this and say, they're coming after our guns. It's another attack on the Second Amendment. What would you say? It is not an attack on the Second Amendment. It is a call for appropriate measures to safeguard our communities and protect our families. Affecting change is a way to honor Jim, her husband of 24 years. We met at Stevie Ray's Blues Bar <laughs> downtown, um, and he walked over to me and said, I love your smile and you have to dance with me. What would you like the public to know about Jim? Jim was an amazing man. He was, um, smart and funny and kind and he just he loved people he liked everybody he met and everybody liked him do you think he'd be proud of you oh i hope so i want to honor him i miss him his last goodbye can't wait to get back home to you now carry a deeper meaning it haunted me for a while, needless to say, to worry about, was he scared? How much pain did he endure? All of those things haunt you. But I know he's in heaven, and I know that, that he has just moved on to that next place, and I'm going to go there too. tears you up. Sure does. It's the little things too about that interview. The little, I, I know this is going to sound weird, but after standard gravure, the mass shooting there, I changed the way I do a lot of things. And then after this one, uh, I, 
I, I tell my wife all the time, like every day, like what I think of her and mm -hmm. how glad I am to have her. And I call my dad and my sister every day because the really, the most disturbing part of this to me, the way that it affected me the most was the realization that in Louisville, Kentucky, or anywhere for that matter, like this could be your la this really could be your last day. And you never know. And it's completely out of your hands. Like you like to think that you can pretty much control your destiny, but you truly, this taught us, that you can't control your own destiny. This might, might be it. No, and that is a really sad realization, whether you send your kid off to school, yep. whether you're in your regular Monday morning meeting, um, the fact is that whether, I mean, in Louisville particularly, you can, I can walk out the street right now and purchase a gun for 50 bucks off a 14-year-old kid. Yes. And so, um, yes, you know, that that is reality, and you're right. Um, she had to wait about three hours to find out if Jim was alive in the chaos of the shooting and the victims and who was where and what. Um, those were three hours that she said obviously were agonizing, um, and it took that amount of time to wonder if she was ever going to see her husband again. So circling back around to the lawsuit, then it, it, it has gotten me over the years, starting way back with Standard Gravure, all the way up through the ones that have happened, uh, some of the school shootings, and now this one, the, the signs that were out there, the, the, the multiple signs. Mm -hmm. You always look back on these and see all the signs well, and the ways they could have caused I'm, this. I'm going to challenge that because, um, you know, in, um, in Sandy Hook, I don't know if you've ever watched the documentary Every Town, um, or no, I'm sorry, American Tragedy. Yes. Um, so the, they interviewed the mother of one of the shooters, and he was a normal kid. Um, she had no, no idea. No, some of them are, but and still, so, there were still many, uh, as this lawsuit gets at, there were other ways to possibly mm -hmm. stopping this. Well, his, uh, he was in therapy. Um, you know, the kid was in therapy, and I say kid, um, but the shooter was in therapy. His um, parents uh, had, they tried, you know, to do as much as they could in interviews. They've said, you know, we, we failed. Um, and this is the realization. One thing that I did walk away with when I heard the mother of the Sandy Hook shooter was that if you think that your loved one, your kid, um, wouldn't ever do this, think again. Because even the parents of this uh, mass shooter they were well aware of all of the mental problems that he had. They tried to intervene. He was on medication. He went through therapy. Um, they were on top of him, and they still couldn't stop it. No. No. All right. Well, we will, uh, we're going to wrap this up now, but there will be many chapters ahead on the lawsuit and on the story. And uh, I know you're working on uh, extra material as well on the old National Bank mesh. I am. Um, there's still many angles to this. Um, for example, um, and I think this is going to work in the lawsuit's favor, is that the gun store had violations uh, reported by the ATF in okay. the past. Um, they had done an inspection, found that their paperwork was shoddy. Um, uh, they had almost sold a, a firearm to a convicted felon. They deemed it as a crime gun place where a lot of, you know, X percentage of guns that had been part of a crime were traced back to this gun store. Now, when I talked to that source um, and I asked them, okay, well, what about that? Definitely, it's going to uh, work in the plaintiff's favor, right? Um, but he did point out that this gun store is not a huge, expensive gun store. Right. And so the clientele that you would expect at this, at River City Firearms, is different than that 
uh, somewhere where you know it's it's more reputable. It, their prices are higher, right? Um, so you would expect to see that. Um, I'm right now. I'm in full research mode. I'm trying to gain context about what those violations mean, um, how they compare to other gun stores, um, where that lies in the scope of the ATF's role in the scope of their investigations. Was it that apparent that this place was problematic? Or is it a routine thing that, hey, they discovered X, Y, and Z, but in, in comparison or in context, it's really not that egregious? I don't know yet. Um, I am working to find that out um, because I think a lot, there's a lot of questions, a lot of context that is missing. And so we certainly have our work cut out for us. Well, that's what we try to do. Wave News Troubleshooters is get the context. Uh, so that is what Natalia has found so far. That's a little bit about uh, what went on behind the scenes in her investigation. We'll keep you posted as we move forward on a story that touched so many of us in so many different ways so deeply. God bless those families. For Natalia Martinez, I'm John Bull. Thanks for watching, listening to Wave Troubleshooters behind the investigation. Have a good day.